0: This is Meowcore, the podcast where I, Laura, show my cool friend Panya the music that I like, and that's mostly hard rock and heavy metal. How are you doing, Panya? It's been better. I think the sun is shining,
1: or at least there's sunshine. It's not raining which is good. It rained on Thursday when I had to go into the office and since I take the commuter train, there was a question whether or not I was going to be walking from the train in the rain. But it did
0: not rain on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. We have nice weather here. It's been very nice. The lake is smooth. Okay. It
1: always confuses me when you talk about the lake because I think about where you are as being by the sea, but you've told me that you look out on a lake that is also by your city.
0: Yeah. And I find that confusing. It's a very long lake that the boats go into, the big ships. We're going to have some fun tonight because um, I've kind of discovered a band. I was never a, th- a big, thin Lizzie fan, I knew a few songs. And I've been listening to them for the past three weeks. It, I have some nice songs to show you.
1: Now, wait a minute. I thought this was supposed to be a podcast about the bands that you love, not the newly discovered bands you found. <laughs> yeah,
0: but I've always really You're liked... cheating! I've always really liked Boys Are Back in Town.
1: That's true.
0: I have always rather liked that one, too. Yeah. I don't think I ever knew it was by them, though. And I've always really liked uh, Tall Dark Gentlemen with Low Voices. So it, fit, it fits. That's the profile. true.
1: You have a taste.
0: Yeah. You you have a taste. And now we have a an Irish gentleman, and uh, I've been watching documentaries about them, and it's mostly an older generation speaking. They don't say biracial. They say Phil Lynott was black and Irish, and he did both very well. They say. Okay. He had a love for history and folklore. He was a devout Catholic, even though they say he was never preachy. And a big football fan.
1: It's very possible to be a devout religious person without trying to pull everyone else into your religion.
0: Yeah, I, I'm kind of relieved that people like that exist. It's just not common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's a different discussion. And he was a big football fan also, and when he made some money, he bought shares in his favorite team. I just don't remember which team oh, it was. let's
1: Let's be clear here. Are we talking about American-style football or what Americans
0: would call soccer? What Americans would call soccer. Okay. That's very important. Okay. So there he is. Um, let's, let's, let's watch uh, Whiskey in the Jar first from 1972. Oh very Irish I know this song quite well A lot of the musicians
1: I like to listen to Around convention time Which for me is the end of August Play this song Because I'm interested in a lot of Celtic bands So this is a very common song for them Mm -hmm. So This
0: is likely to be a More rock oriented version Which I don't normally hear They wrote some really nice guitar parts for it They say that uh, they were kind of struggling in the studio one day and Phil grabbed a guitar and started playing his old favorite Irish folk songs. And he ended up playing Whiskey in the Jar. They played it together. Someone walked in, I think their manager, and said, you guys should record this and you have a hit. And they did. This was their first big hit.
1: All right. Well, let's listen to a rendition, an arrangement. Let's listen to an arrangement of Whiskey in the Jar by Thin Lizzy. Okay, the last couple of notes just about broke me because that's very different. <laughs> what kind of ending is that? I don't know. It's just weird. It's not what I expect from a rock song. This is really funny.
0: Wait, I'm going to play just the last seconds.
1: And it's just, it was not, uh, it was not what I expected, I guess is the best way of putting it.
0: They were making funny noises on the guitars. Yeah. They
1: were, but there's a you know there's a particular. Um, I don't. I guess riff is the right word for that. But he was playing a a very specific thing, and then didn't cap it, which confused me too. <laughs> okay. You know, anytime and anytime someone does the riff, shaving a haircut, if they don't do two bits at the end, it makes me crazy.
0: <laughs> it's just a thing. Yeah. I don't know
1: why. It's just a thing that happens
0: to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, these guitar melodies, are, do you, are they from the folk tradition? It's very difficult to tell. I think that, I think you're right. They, they
1: it may be predicated on someone's existing notes. But I don't know that there is a standard existing backing sound for Whiskey in the Jar. Mm-hmm. The song itself, the, the, the lyric line is pretty standard, pretty familiar. But I don't know that there's a standard existing backing. Um, one of the things I did find interesting is that at the very beginning, um, the, the sound that Phil is playing emulates fairly closely the sound of a bodron which is often a drum that's often used in in these kinds of playings which you know very few drum kits are gonna have a bodron much less play it it's played um it's a handheld drum
0: Hmm. wait i'm googling And i don't
1: i honestly don't know how you would fit one of those into a standard drum kit how do you spell that? Uh, it's Celtic, so B-O-D-H-R-A-N. As you might have noticed, I was not good at, in spelling competitions at
0: school. I can spell things, just not out loud. Yeah, yeah those, those are strange. You can, you can write things correctly without spelling out loud. Oh yeah, it is handheld. Wait, I'm going to go listen to what he did at the start. But
1: it, it sounds like someone playing a bodhran quite quickly, which is often done in the lead-in to that song. To, to set, and then it switches over to the drums, to the actual drum set. The other thing I noticed that struck me quite sharply is he sings that song much slower than I'm used to hearing it. Mm-hmm. And yet the drums themselves, the the beat that's set is quite fast. But he's still singing it um about half as fast
0: as I'm used to hearing it. Mm-hmm. Not just the pauses between the lines, but just his the speed and whole the whole lines
1: themselves, like every single word is, is slower. Um Maybe in a couple of episodes, we'll do uh, an episode of a couple of the Celtic bands that I like, one of them, and we'll listen to a much more traditional version of Whiskey in the Jar, and then we can compare,
0: because this was much slower. Mm-hmm. But it was still very merry. It's, it's very it's oh, yeah. it's a cheerful song.
1: It's a cheerful song, but the song as I'm used to hearing it is, is much, I can't say anything other than it's faster.
2: Mhm.
1: And one of the things that traditional Irish songs are are commonly used for, honestly, and were even back in the day is they're they're sung by groups that perform in pubs and such, and so they're intended to be quite fast and they're intended to encourage the listener to clap or dance or sing along in order to exhaust them so that they'll order more beer.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: And so the slower version, while it's quite good, would not have induced the listeners to order more beer out of exhaustion and a need to wet their throat. In many ways, that that need to um, create custom for the sellers of the beer is a huge part of why there exists this long, long, long standing tradition of musicians performing in places that serve alcohol.
2: Mm.
0: I hadn't thought about that.
1: Yep. That's that's an extremely ancient tradition. And that's part of it is you hire the musician to come in and it, they, they amuse the customers, which helps cut down on fights. Mm-hmm. And they induce the customers to sing and dance and clap and be merry. And that induces them to buy more beer. Um, in some cases, you induce them to cry so that they want to drown their melancholy in the beer.
0: hmm but, by the way, why is the whiskey in, in a jar? I honestly don't know.
1: I, I have not done any research on the lyrics of this. Um, it's true that amongst folk who are... Uh, we refer to them as moonshiners, but folk who make liquor at home, which in the United States is illegal, mm-hmm. um they often store it or decant it into what we refer to as mason jars. But mm. uh, Mason jars are the company that makes this this type of jar. Um I believe prior to the existence of mason jars they were stored in like ceramic jars and things don't know why it's referred to as a jar and not a bottle. I think a lot of that has to do with the shapes of it. And it's true that it's a lot easier to decant things into something with a wide mouth, which is more commonly referred to as a jar rather than a bottle. Mm. Yeah. But we're kind of we're kind of descending into linguistics and cultural stuff here that I'm making wild guesses at.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. I heard about Thin Lizzy when Metallica made an album of cover versions more than 10 years ago now, maybe 15 years ago, and Whiskey in the Jar was one of them. A Metallica
1: version of Whiskey in the Jar must be fascinating. We'll have to do a Metallica episode at some point. There's no reason not to, so we'll have to put that on there, and then we can have multiple versions to compare to, which is one of the reasons why... When I introduced Whiskey in the Jar, I was so careful to refer to it as an arrangement. Because mm-hmm. to be fair, things like traditional folk ballads, it's, there's no such... You're not covering them. They're so well-known. They're so popular. They're so widespread. But to say an arrangement, this is a specific version with this kind of instrumenta- instrumentation. But if Metallica was doing... A version that closely emulated Thin Lizzy's arrangement then that was probably a cover and music is weird
0: mm-hmm. yeah I agree in and the they, way that they name things <laughs> they very faithfully followed these guitar parts and they, they didn't change much and it was again Metallica's most merry song that's interesting if you want to play something merry for the party and you want it to be Metallica it'll have to be this one the rest is very dramatic which is very
1: odd which is very odd all right so then lizzie starts us off with
0: irish ballads but what else do they do they i'm gonna we're gonna play the boys are back in town uh which they, they say is one of the best songs in rock and roll about rock and roll about having fun and meeting the boys because the boys are back in town That makes sense. This one's from 76. Let's watch the official video. I know this this song
2: quite
1: well. It's very popular on the radio, especially on any station that labels itself oldies. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. To be on Spotify.
0: But I wanted the the video because um, Phil Linnett is uh, looking at the camera and it's very nice to experience.
1: You know what happens when you ask me to watch a video though. I get distracted from the music.
0: He's very charming. Let's see. I mean that's works. what rock
1: stars are.
0: But unlike the dudes from ACDC, he he is charming.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay, well let's try this again. Let's watch let's watch this version of The Boys Were are Back in Town by Thin Lizzy. I just need Scott Gorman's hair, okay? Forget the rest of that. I need his hair. I was just getting ready to talk about him. <laughs> I, I need his
0: hair. Wow. Although,
1: somebody needs to hand him a couple of hair clips to keep it out of his face. Come on, baby.
0: No, this is, this is part of the, of the plan.
1: Well, and this is the 70s when even ladies with hair like that wore it right to frame their face and I'm going how can you
0: stand that Mm -hmm. yeah I get that
1: but you know in case our listeners haven't haven't heard or we haven't mentioned it um I have hair that reaches to my knees and it's uh pretty straight so if I had been a girl in the 70s I would have fit right in I had I have that kind of hair and I'm very uh, opinionated on what people do with theirs when they have it like that. I'm just kind of looking at him with that hair all falling in his face, the way he shakes it back. And I'm just going, just just pull it back, honey.
0: Just pull it back. <laughs> I I remember this man. I don't remember when I learned about the members of Thin Lizzy, but I remember his his face and I remember his name. And it's a mystery. It's probably just because he's so attractive they're all pretty attractive yeah I, I tried to look up wh- which other bands he was in none of the bands I was ever interested in so there's a guy that made a, a stamp on my brain clearly and, and there you have twin guitars as they say these very nice yeah. and, um, harmonies that they make they were kind of cut off at the end but for that video nice. yeah mhm but
1: yeah i noticed that was a shorter version
0: and i love these these harmonies that they made um the eagles were pretty good at that remember the end of hotel california Uh yeah i i do think the eagles were probably
1: inspired by them actually 76 i don't know or they might have just i mean it doesn't have to necessarily be a big difference in time for them to be inspired by each other. mm-hmm, yeah, you know so but you're right, that's
0: very similar to the Eagles um, and i I was when I was watching these documentaries, Scott Corum, uh was saying that toward the end of the seventies the drugs the drug addictions got really bad within thin Lizzie, and he says, "Thank God for golf." Uh, golf (laughs) saved me from heroin. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. He said... "Yeah, Keep going, I don't have anything. (laughs) (laughs) He said these addictions, uh, when you stop doing the thing, it leaves such a hole in your life. And I filled that with golf, and you guys have no idea how important it is to me to get this (sighs) little stinky white ball to go in the right holes, and it brings me so much joy.
1: (laughs) I mean, whatever it takes. <laughs> I I don't think it's entirely accurate to uh he clearly decided to go off and get addicted to golf instead of something else and that's still an addiction. <laughs> but there is a distinct difference between being addicted to something that physically alters your brain and something that you you wouldn't enjoy it but it's not going to leave you throwing up if you abandon it
0: mm-hmm. and you get time in the sun etc yep.
1: right and for all that the way golf is played it doesn't look terribly athletic it really kind of is it's a fairly athletic game with some really specific uh, musculature that is required uh A long, long time ago, I took a trip through Great Britain as part of a kind of a school thing. And I was very excited to be able to hit a golf ball on the famous greens at St. Andrews. Mm -hmm. So
0: how far did it go?
1: Oh, I don't remember. I didn't actually care. I did not try to hit it particularly hard. I was just putting. (laughs)
2: Mm hmm.
1: But the, the idea of being able to, to hit a golf ball in that location was, was very exciting to 16-year-old Panya. Yeah, nice. And I'm wondering, most of the bands we've listened to have either been pure British as in England or American. And I'm wondering if there's a particular tonality to the voices in Thin Lizzy. And I'm wondering if that's linked to the Irish, the, the Scottish heritage of these guys.
2: Hmm.
0: I don't know. Who are we comparing to? American singers from the same time? Um,
1: Just kind of all the music we've listened to so far, really. I don't have a better way of explaining what it is I'm hearing. You mean the voices like, may be lower? No, it's not a pitch thing. It's a pronunciation thing and it's uh It's the best the best word I have is is quality. As you know, some some musicians voices are breathy, some are kind of sharper or fuzzy sounding. Mm-hmm. This these guys have a particular quality to their voice. I notice it in particular in this song, because of the repetition of the title line. And when you watch this video, and I imagine when you watch other performances, um, Phil sings the title line, and then the other two, the guitarists, repeat it. But they sound almost exactly like him.
0: Yeah, that's probably uh, playback. He probably recorded that's annoying. all the vocals.
1: I don't approve of that then that's that's frustrating mm. i might it, have to go find a live version and see if the tonality is still the same because i do think it's possible it's similar. that they could be imitating him that closely that's
0: possible mm-hmm. uh, i've heard scott gorham singing it uh this uh, the live and uh i remember he had a good voice but i don't remember i might go look for his. that mm-hmm. i
1: might go look for that later okay all right so so that's
0: probably their most popular song Mm -hmm. yeah it probably was all the way until metallica covered whiskey in the jar and whiskey also went up there people became more aware of it
1: that makes sense that makes sense and it's pretty common with covers by big names People will, will often go find the originals, although it does make me wonder. There's a phenomenon in uh, literary fandom that occurs occasionally where an author will become very, very popular with a basic idea, such as wizard schools, and any other author, regardless of the timing, who writes a similar book will be accused of ripping them off.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: And I'm wondering if that happens. If, for example, there are folk who think that the original arrangement was Metallica's and that Thin Lizzy somehow covered them, even though in a oh. in a time since that doesn't work.
0: No, don't worry about that. We, <laughs> we know it's a band from the 70s and the genre is mostly... Well, I'm not going to make such a big statement, but we have a lot of people who are very nerdy about the history of the genre. So n- no one really thought that. We d- we didn't notice. Okay. it. No worries. So that's a literary
1: thing and not a musical thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. These are big idols, and uh, we have a lot of dudes who are very proud of their knowledge and of how retro they are. That so is true. We have that memory. That is true. All right. So what should we listen to next? Dancing in the Moonlight. Very smooth. They call it puppy, but... I feel like this is
1: familiar, and I may know it and not realize it. There's other songs with that title. That's true. Let's go listening to Dancing in the Moonlight by Thin Lizzy. Now, where they're getting describing that as poppy. That's not what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing is Motown. I'm hearing jazz.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Not just because of the saxophone, but the way that the voices blend, the way the harmonies work, the stacking of those sounds. That's not pop. That's, that's Motown. That's jazz.
2: Mhm. I agree.
1: That's that's um without intending to be racist here, that's black-inspired music, mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense since Phil was Irish and black.
0: What was pop and at the time?
1: I have no idea. But that was not
2: it. <laughs> yeah.
1: And honestly in my opinion pop as a music genre doesn't really mean very much Mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot it pop simply seems to include anything that doesn't fall into another genre and is still popular
0: yeah inaccessible i mean
1: the word itself was derived from popular that's so maybe buddy holly i mean that's older but i don't know
0: in the in the mind of uh more of the more gatekeepy among us metalheads it's uh, it's like a synonym of selling out oh no they made a pop song now this thing is available to the people who didn't used to like it and the people who bullied me in school so I'm not going to listen to the pop song God knows,
1: metalheads of that ilk must be absolutely horrified whenever any of their preferred musicians get radio play.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They betrayed us. They sold out. Yeah. Metallica has never made a, a good album since uh, 86, if you ask them.
1: I can't roll my eyes hard enough. <laughs> They'd fall out of my head. <laughs> that's, that's,
0: that's nonsense. Let's, uh, let's go to a love song that, that uh, was a love song let's, let's get another this was a love song about being very young and uh, getting a detention for staying up too late and, right you know, and chocolate
1: get, on your pants yeah uh, by that the way, line
0: me up. someone from the band said that the movie theater that they used to go to was just very dirty because of all the teens that were going there and just leaving chocolate wrappers so they thought this is why Phil wrote that line
1: Oh, OK. I was I was thinking, you know, he eats his chocolate and then he has to wipe his fingers off on his pants because if he leaves, if he gets chocolate stains on his girl, people will know.
0: Whereas mm. if he wipes it off
1: on his pants, he might have been in the theater by himself.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Nice.
1: I don't. I mean, even the boys are back in town is kind of a love song. Mm-hmm. There, There's certainly an element of love in there. Or at least of us
0: I like the way he addresses me in that song, and he says that I'm driving all the bo- all the old men crazy that's... yeah
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's whomever he's singing to the girl he's singing to who is hot and attractive and although there was a period of time where I didn't like the boys are back in town because what I heard in it was a fraternity college boy coming home all stuck up and arrogant because he went off to college and the rest of us didn't. Oh, And while the rest of us didn't is not actually applicable to me. I did go to college. I did graduate. I've never gotten on with the Greek set. Uh, and so there was a period of time when that song, all that song did was remind me of the people who turned up their noses at me because I wasn't like them.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: But mm-hmm.
1: that's a different disco. Mm-hmm. So a love song, a pure love song, as opposed to these others, which are Much something Much purer. Else. Another love All song. Right. It's called
0: Sarah. And uh, watch the official video because it's fun.
1: Okay. Let's listen to Sarah by Thin Lizzy. Now, why don't more songs these days have those kinds of interesting guitar sounds?
0: Mm-hmm, I agree. And again, this was more of an Al Green, Bill Withers kind of a song. Yeah,
1: but I'm much more interested in the interesting things they did with the guitars than the actual lyrics.
0: Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. this very benign, loving, calm mood. And of course, That's the voice true. of a black man.
1: Oh, well yeah but i'm just thinking about the the vibrations and the much higher notes Mm
2: -hmm. that
1: they were playing and that was that's very different the problem is i don't have a lot of um context or words to describe what i'm thinking about this except that was cool i want more (laughs) <laughs> That's all yeah. I've got. I don't have a lot to say about it because I don't have anything else to compare it to, which is very interesting.
0: Maybe a little inspired by the the folky tunes that he knew and maybe a little inspired by disco and synthesizers.
1: Synthesizers, I think. It didn't actually sound very folky to me. And Frankly, I'm not really thinking about what it might have been inspired by in terms of the, the arrangement of the notes so much as how did they achieve that with those instruments. And I've never really had the opportunity to examine an electric guitar up close. I know that they have the knobs and they have that bar, and I don't know what those are for. hmm I don't know what effect that has on the sound,
0: but I think I just heard some of it. <laughs> yeah and there's electric versions of uh older types of instruments there's probably there are electric sitars and there's probably something like an electric mandolin
1: i'm sure there are i'm sure there are
0: we will happily look at more knobs when we get to stevie <laughs> I, I love those knobs and things. <laughs> That sounds wrong, Laura. Oh, I didn't think of that. I'm a purely technical person. (laughs) I was thinking about guitars. You're so
2: (laughs) full of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And uh, Scott Gorham's uh, addition at the end. Another gorgeous uh, person with long hair to join him on stage. Right. That was really nice. I only discovered this video today and... I loved everything about it and the song. Mm, Let's go watch them live, really live. Really, really live. uh, Really, really
1: live, okay.
0: mm -hmm, 78 at uh, Sydney, Jailbreak. Okay.
1: So tell me about this song.
0: This is probably older than the live, a lot older than the live performance. And you'll hear something quicker and heavier.
1: Okay, cuz none of the things that they've really played or that we've listened to so far have been what I think of as heavy. It's all been um standard, mhm, I guess. And that may have something to do with the fact that I know I'm familiar with some of these songs, but they're not heavy in the way that of they're not heavy in the way that I heard with Deep Purple.
0: Mm-hmm. And they're
1: definitely not heavy in the way that I heard in Black Sabbath. Yep,
0: yeah. but these two that I've that I've planned, Jailbreak, and and the last one, uh, Black Rose, you 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 will be more guitar oriented, and the guitar the guitars will be tuned lower. You'll see. Okay.
1: All right, so let's listen to a live version of Jailbreak played at the Sydney Opera House in 1978. It's always startling to watch some kind of live music and then because of the way the musicians will tend to go into the next song, if you're listening to a single song, it just cuts off.
0: Yeah, yeah, true. It's always a little startling.
1: It was kind of hard to pay attention to the music there because I was so busy paying attention to the way he was connected with the crowd.
0: Yeah, yeah, he was very charismatic uh, with those moves.
1: Um the other guitarist, not Scott, but the other one, Brian, bouncing oh. all over the stage.
0: I'll tell like, you, Dude, stand still. Brian's gone at this point. This is Gary Moore. Do you remember Gary? Ah,
1: Moore? okay.
0: Gary okay, Moore. I is... beg your pardon. Do you remember Gary Moore? Because that's a. I don't know anything about. This is the Irish gentleman who was singing. Still got the blues. But I've still got the blues for you. I
1: don't know that
0: one. Oh, we're gonna do a Gary Moore episode. I love this man. All right, he's an a, all right amazing singer. Amazing, he is. But the point is, yeah. if you taped his feet to the stage, he'd just die. No, yeah, there's no way. <laughs>
1: he cannot stand still. He was vibrating all over that stage. hmm
0: Yeah. And uh, you, you did you notice the way that Scott Gorham holds his guitar? He is what I call He's in the Miles Kennedy Club. They they kind of bend their legs a little and they hold the, the body of the guitar between their thighs. I did
1: not notice that. What I've been noticing is the fact that Phil holds, not just holds, but wears his bass much higher than I'm used to seeing. Mm-hmm. It's like if, if he took off his clothes, he would not be hiding anything with that, whereas most musicians could hide things. With the place that they wear their guitar or their bass. And he carries his much higher. And yet he's clearly quite tall and has long arms. So I sort of wonder how that
0: how that's comfortable for him.
1: But apparently it was.
0: Mm-hmm. Or is. And he's one of the people that play the bass with a pick, you not know, with their fingers.
1: I've known a couple of basses who do that, actually. Um, I think most of the basses that I've been... Uh, let me rephrase that sentence. The two bases that I'm friends with or friendly with play with a pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have two of them from Riker, mm-hmm. but so yeah,
0: yeah. And that was a huge crowd. There yes, was no, it was. You couldn't see the end of it. It was in a no.
1: Harbor. Well, I mean, the Sydney Opera House is not what you'd call small.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That would be a fun place to go see a band at, though.
0: Mhm. Yeah, with some good weather.
1: Mhm.
0: Yeah. So we have one song left. This one is a bit longer, and uh, it's supposed to have two uh, folk songs in it, like ideas and melodies and lyrics from two folk songs. Uh, All right. It looks like the black rose is a sort of a symbol for ireland i don't know much about that
1: i don't think so
0: Mm -mm -mm. and uh, that's not
1: familiar to me from the irish uh culture and history i know but then i'm very american and we could have irish listeners who will tell me where to stick it
0: (laughs) yeah i agree
1: and i would be completely welcome to be corrected on this if the black rose is an irish thing that i don't know about then
0: that's fine Mm -hmm. one of the songs that are supposed to be in there is will you go lassie go also known as wild mountain time
1: i know about wild mountain time i do know that song Uh, that's also performed by one of my favorite celtic artists and is a bit slower and definitely a bit sadder melancholy is the right word for what that sounds like in a traditional sense
0: Mm -hmm. but they say uh, that song is mistakenly credited as a traditional song it was in fact written by william William mcpeak and recorded by francis mcpeak so let's listen to black rose on uh, spotify so you can see the lyrics too and i guess i guess he called it an um a rock legend because he was into these legends of old, but this one is a rock legend, and he, he's continuing the tradition.
1: Oh, I see that the, in the original, original name, he actually uses the Irish. But I guess a lot of people can't pronounce that, and if I tried, I would probably destroy it.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to try either.
1: <laughs> but I do recognize, and I, even if they didn't translate it, I would know what it meant. But then... That's a thing I've studied. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's listen to Black Rose by Thin Lizzy. Kenzie refers to it as a rock legend, but it's not terribly cohesive. No, there's a lot of, there are more than two traditional folk songs echoed in there. There's about half a dozen. Uh, Not to mention, there's about half a dozen references to other rock and roll musicians.
0: Yeah. If Van Morrison is Irish, he is talking about him. Mm hmm. I've heard Georgie Knows other. Best, but I don't know who Georgie is. Mm hmm. Georgie Knows Best.
1: But there's a, there's a, I mean, pretty much the entire song is I'm going to take every single pop culture reference and traditional culture reference to Ireland and jam them together in this one medley that except for the guitar bit in the middle isn't terribly coherent. Yep. And compared to all the rest of the work that you've shown me, I can't see why this song would even be worth listening to more than once.
0: I kind of like I I do like these these merry folky bits and I like the way they played it with the with these guitars.
1: Yeah, no it if I could just rip out all of the lyrics I think it would be a very interesting song to listen to and it's true that it is common among traditionalist Celtic bands to do medleys of things and often the songs that they choose for their medleys are very different sounding from one another and it can be quite jarring as they shift from one to the other Mm. but this one isn't even a medley in that sense it doesn't echo any of them long enough for you to get used to it and to feel like they're singing that song. Mm -hmm. It's just a line or two and then they shift off to something else. And another line or two and they shift off to something else. And it's just, it's very difficult to follow.
0: Mm -hmm. I get you.
1: I think this may be one of the few songs you've given me that I don't actually like.
0: Uh huh. Okay. Uh, What I read about it is that there are bits of it that people think are parts of a folk song, but were really thin lizzy ideas and I think they if Phil is so familiar with the with this music, maybe he's able to fool us that a little a little melody is folk when he actually wrote it. But I don't know about it. I think it might be
1: song. some of the other way around, honestly. I think he's such a talented musician that he's able to deceive people into well, deceive is the wrong word, but listeners who are not as deeply familiar with the Irish folk sound and the traditional ballads and what's derived from that may believe that they're hearing something that he wrote when in fact it is either directly repeating or very closely echoing an existing traditional sound.
0: hmm I see. So that's uh that's another place where we have the legendary Gary Moore that I will show you someday. And uh okay. then Lizzie carries on into the eighties. Uh Phil also has a little solo project, but uh, uh, we lose him in '86. His health had deteriorated seriously from all the drug use, and he died of pneumonia in '86. He has a there's a statue of him in Dublin. It looks like the Irish are very proud of him, just like he was proud to be Irish.
1: Oh, that's not surprising in the least.
0: And they say that Thin Lizzy was the band that paved the way for. Irish musicians in many ways they made a bridge to England and then they made a bridge to the end of the world um, Bono from U2 has said that he was very grateful to them and uh, they were a big influence although I don't hear it in U2's music but I understand why they would be encouraged by Thin Lizzy's success
1: There are different ways to be influenced by other musicians and it's not always in the direct sound sense
0: mm-hmm. Yep yeah.
1: You know, if Bono was inspired by them to pick up a guitar and believe that he could be successful Then it wouldn't, that still influence whether or not you can hear a direct analog of the sound in what he made
0: mm-hmm. So that's it, that's then Lizzie for us today Alright Tell me what the kiddies are doing
1: Well, at the moment, they're all sleeping, which is good because for most of the time I've been awake today, Kronos has been extremely uh, crazy, I think is the best word, which is odd. He's not normally a wild and crazy kind of boy. He's normally a a reasonably calm fellow. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he got into the catnip today or what. Right now, he's staring at me like he has no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) <laughs> but I gotta... He's laying on one of the catnip toys, actually. But as far as we know, except for his mother, Kronos is the oldest cat in the house. And yet today, he's been behaving like he's about three. Bothering <laughs> and poor buddy, unmercifully, buddy, does not want to wrestle. He does not want to play. And Kronos is not hearing that. Did he bite you on the butt, buddy? Did he bite you on the butt? Mm-hmm. It looks like he bit you on the butt. Come here. There you go. <laughs> Pat Buddy's butt. Yep. Yep. And Kronos has been for almost the entire time we've had him a kind of a one-person cat. Some cats are are generally friendly to everybody, like Buddy, and some cats are sort of semi-friendly to everybody, and some cats just really only prefer one person. If I were to stand up right now, Kronos would probably get up and run towards the door. And it's not so much that he's frightened of me exactly, but he knows that if I stand up, I'm probably likely to try to pet him. Mm-hmm. Whereas husband just turned his chair and Kronos went, oh, I'm going to get pets.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Kronos has always preferred the husband to me, which, you know, on the one hand is kind of sad and disappointing and because he is a very sweet boy. And on the other hand, at least it means he likes somebody. Yeah. You know, I took took a little video earlier today where Kronos was standing up on his hind feet, grabbing the husband's hand and just licking the stuffing off of it. Not real stuffing, but just like, lick, 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 lick,
2: lick, lick. (laughs) Um,
1: For the most part, I'm only allowed to pet and touch Kronos when it's time for bed. Uh, He has developed a bedtime ritual He will come in and tell us if we try to stay awake on weeknights past about 1030. If we haven't gone into the bedroom by then, and we usually have, but if we haven't, he'll come and tell us. Bedtime! And he'll kind of stand in the doorway and stare at us and say some meow. And then when we get in the bed, then he comes in and sits between us and headbutts us really hard. And sometimes there's purrs and he's definitely soliciting pets. And if one of us moves around too much, he'll get up and leave.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he's not really fond of being held, um, but he will accept me petting him, and will solicit petting from me when it's bedtime. But only when it's bedtime.
2: Mm-hmm. How
1: um, sweet! And he's a cat of such habit that uh, there's, you know, most people when when they're when they've lived in a space for a while. They'll, they'll fall into habits of, of where they sit, like on a couch or something. And Michael has a tendency to sit in the center of our long couch. And so if someone else sits there, Cronus will occasionally run up to them thinking that their husband. And then become very confused and very upset oh. when he discovers it's not the person he thought it was. Oh, As they're lifting a hand to pet him. And and he'll just bolt off down the hall. And that's happened a couple of times. Uh, he's he's very, very husband-oriented. Uh, let's see if he'll let me pet him right now, now that he's being petted. Well, I get a kiss, and then he jumps down, and he does not want me to pet him. Okay. Yeah. But I can pet him. I can pet him later tonight. And he has become a lot more social over the last six months. He used to not really show himself except at bedtime. That used to be when we would discover what he'd been up to all day. But over the last six months, he has been willing to at least lay in the same room as me and hang out. Um, And especially if we're both in here, he will, he'll come hang out. And when I bring out the treat box, he comes for his share. (laughs) Uh, He'll let me give him a treat or two. I'm not to pet him when I do that. He knows that's a trap but I can feed him the treats. (laughs) So, he's 12 or 13 now, so he's a pretty good age for a kitty, and we may not... He doesn't show a lot of signs of ill health, but that's not unusual for cats. Um, Hmm. Even cats that are quite sick, you won't always know until it's far too late. But, at least right now, he, he seems to be in good health, and... We'll see how long he and his brother carry on. Their sisters are both gone now.
0: Mm -hmm. If he's surprised that it's not your husband sitting in that spot, could it be because he doesn't see that well?
1: I think many cats see very well. Um, I think it might partly be that. Um, He did have a pretty significant eye infection as a tiny kitten. And he is one of the very, very rare non-white cats to have odd eyes. Uh, they're not as dramatically odd as white cats often display. Uh, white cats often have one blue eye and one green eye, mm. whereas Cronus has one pale green eye and one kind of amber eye. Uh, so they're not, you know, dramatically different, but he does have odd eyes and it's possible that it's a vision thing. I think it's more closely related to his, uh, his habitual lifestyle compared to some cats, he is much more habit-oriented, which is why he comes in to tell us about bedtime. He knows when it's bedtime.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, He's flicking his tail at me. He knows I'm talking about him.
0: (laughs) I wonder if I was looking at uh, the time less on these uh, devices with uh, screens, if I would still know that it's exactly bedtime. I might give it a try Oh no.
1: I don't know I think for me probably not um, because of the way that the sunset shifts mm-hmm. um, and it's certainly true that uh, for me the times of the year when the clock changes when we do daylight savings time really screw me up for a couple of weeks Mm-hmm. Because I've got used to sunset being about this time, or and and I, I can handle the the slow creep as we're mm-hmm. shifting from solstice to solstice, but the sudden jump of an hour really screws me up, and I, I really have trouble keeping track of what time it is because I do get sort of predicated on that sun. But cats are maybe more um, oriented towards that slow shift and of course they don't care about human clocks Mm
0: -hmm. we keep talking about how there was a decision made in the European Union to stop making these these one hour shifts but no one knows when we will actually stop making Mm. them I don't know there is hope
1: I don't know that that's likely to ever change as a whole in the United States But I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. I'm not really sure I care strongly either way, but I can think of parts of the United States where it might actually make quite a significant difference. Okay. All right. So the author I would like to give you this week is named David Eddings. Uh, I specifically want to bring him to you this week because listening to thin lizzie we had a lot of discussion about the echoing of traditional things and the use of the existing folk ballads and the thing that david eddings is best known for although you occasionally have to do a little research to figure this out is there's a thing in literature and television that is commonly referred to as tropes standard ideas that are are very common and very familiar to everybody um, things like um And then I just short it out um,
0: things like kill your gaze
1: yeah, that's yeah that's not that's not a nice one, but yes, yes, um things like uh the existence of the wise old mentor. Um, and the fact that if the mentor is black, they have a certain kind of behavior pattern, and if they're white, they have a certain kind of behavior pattern, things like that.
0: Um, and sometimes you have a, a mythical meeting, like in that Uriah heaps Heap song, exactly. the lady in black who right. gives you life advice. Right,
1: and that's also a trope. And particularly if you're reading older literature, um, such as Tolkien, for example, or the example that's always stuck out for me has been Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. If you're reading that now and you don't have a lot of context, what you're thinking is, well, this is so boring. Everybody does it this way. I want something new which is kind of what I did the first time I read Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court the, the time displaced guy who goes back way back in history and and makes changes or uses his knowledge and it didn't occur to me until quite some time later that what I was actually looking at was the origination of that trope
0: the yeah, first it's putes. twain
1: right and so tropes are tools as the tv tropes folks likes to say but My reaction to Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court is not uncommon when one sees a trope. It's it's to go, "This, this tired old thing, why won't somebody do something new? What makes Eddings unique, or at least notable, is the fact that he took a vast array of those tired old tropes and used them the way they're intended to be used, as tools. He built a several times in a row, in fact, a very significant, very powerful, very well-written story. And the tropes jump out and hit you in the face every single time. And yet the story is powerful, it is good, it it does feature unique elements. And that's one of the things that makes him a good read. Um, The other thing that he did is he basically wrote the same essential story four different times in four different series. And by the last time he wrote it, he had condensed it down to a single volume, which I felt was a little too much. Uh, there there were there were too many things that were elated. There were too many things that were compressed too tightly to make it as good a story as it had been. Uh, most people who look up who look him up or have read anything by him will have found the Belgariad which is a five-volume series focusing on the rise and world-saving activities of the character Belgarian, most commonly known as Garian, who embodies the trope of the farm boy who saves the world. Hmm. And as he moves through the story, he collects uh, the wise mother, and the mentor, and the beautiful princess, and the archer, and the uh, protective knight. He collects all of these, and they're honestly, it's, it's also, it also uses the prophecy trope, and the prophecy itself uses the tropes of these character types in identifying within the story which characters are supposed to be on this journey with him. They're identified as the knight protector. As the archer. As uh, I believe he's referred to as the old wolf. Because the wise mentor has a tendency to take wolf shape. When he needs to shapeshift. He followed up this five volume series. With a second five volume series. Which is known as the Malarion. After the location in which most of the action occurs. And it's not quite as obviously trope heavy because it is kind of a follow up series tying up uh, different ideas from the first one but it's still good Uh, it still features some of these same characters and it plays even more heavily with the ideas of good versus evil of a choice that has to be made between good and evil and how it's entirely possible that the way that people see the world changes how they see good and evil. That, that their experiences that this thing that you see is unequivocally good, may be evil to them. It plays with those ideas pretty well. Um, I don't think it's quite as well written as the Belgariad, but it's still well done. And then he took those same basic ideas, um, not quite all of the same trope, but the same basic idea of good versus evil and two competing uh, perspectives, I guess, that that the world has to choose between and the champions of those perspectives. And he wrote a six book series divided into two trilogies called The Illinium and the Temulai in my opinion, this was his best treatment of the arc he was working with. It's tightly written, but not so tight that you feel compressed. It's not so loose that there are bits of the story where you feel it's kind of boring. He does a lot more treatment of political stuff than he did in the Belgariad, and I think he treated it very well. He does a lot more interesting treatment of different cultures and what happens when those cultures interact and how to manage um vast areas with multiple different cultures in it's like the belgariad full of tropes and obvious uh serial numbers filed off references to real world things such as judaism And uh, Vikings and berserkers and all of that kind of stuff. He makes he never made a secret of the fact that the majority of the cultures in his books were pretty much directly derived from real world cultures. He never made a secret of that. There is a book published that contains a considerable amount of the world building he did for the Belgariad um that includes um some references some some of the mythology that he wrote for these different cultures and the way that it fits together um the birth of the gods that kind of thing and it's a very interesting look into how some authors develop the world spaces that they work in
0: he wrote a book about his
1: books um, it's not exactly a written book. The Riven Codex is more like an assembly of all the extraneous writing he did that didn't make ac- actually make it into the books because it wasn't relevant to the story. Oh, it's nice. what's commonly referred to among authors as a world-building Bible. And mo- many authors don't ever actually publish this stuff. It's not shared in any kind of organized way. Um, more, more recent authors such as Rowling or Brandon Sanderson will often distribute considerable tidbits from their world building Bible in interviews to fan questions, that kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. some authors such as I think, um, Diane Duane will keep a wiki that they update themselves with this information. But for the most part, it's a world-building Bible is, is just all the stuff that an author has written down to help them remember what I was planning to do with this world. And it doesn't frequently get published. But the existence of the Riven Codex is an interesting examination of one author's world-building exercises, what he wrote down, what he chose to do. And you can see how that carries out. Um, he is extremely skilled at continuity. There are very 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 few places in his books and when you're looking at a 10 book series that's a lot of space where there's a continuity error. And if you see Mm -hmm. something that looks like a continuity error chances are when you get three books farther along you'll discover that no he meant to do that. Oh. Or at the very least, he might not have
2: meant to do that, but he covers it up real good. Uh, Very nice.
1: The next series that he wrote uh, was not actually a series. It was the standalone version of the same story. And this is the version that I feel is is more than a little too compressed because it again is the same basic good versus evil. Must make a choice chosen by the gods to fix the world kind of story. It involves prophecies, it involves collecting these specific characters who meet these specific criteria and they each have a specific job in order to save the world. It's it's basically the same story and it's it's a little too compressed and the the result of that compression is to leave the reader feeling that the deus ex machina trope was the only one he was interested in. Because there are a lot of uh, really handy coincidences that just don't organically flow.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: he has... Three standalone books that don't really bear any relationship to any of these stories. they're completely separate and aren't really fantasy at all. Um I've only read one of them, and i it's a murder mystery, and it's just kind of eh, and I'm not really a murder mystery reader unless you surround it with fantasy tropes. Mm-hmm. So. uh and then. In the call it the sunset years of his life, he was working on a novel series called The Dreamers that sort of tried to step away from that same basic story, but I feel that his writing ability was not up to the task. Uh, he was chasing after a different trope set, the ones that revolve around um, basically alien bugs. Uh, There's a whole fun trope set revolving around that. You'll find a lot of it in uh, StarCraft and that kind
0: of... Alien bugs? Yeah. Like insects? Yeah.
1: Hmm. Uh, A lot of the tropes are things like um, heavy specialization of different groups so that you have the the farming cast and the warrior cast and this, you know, and about the idea that they can literally be evolved into a different form within a couple of generations and i'm talking about like a literal whole different form not just like Mm. little changes um those trope that trope set also includes the idea that because bugs breed quite quickly they can overrun things quite quickly um Mm -hmm. and that links it in with the trope set revolving around uh nanobots and gregoo
0: and they probably have a hive mind.
1: Often, yes. Um, Some of the most familiar treatment of that set of tropes is found in Starship Troopers. If you can look past the uh, militaristic aspects of the story, Starship Troopers probably is one of the best uses of those tropes, but they're very common. And so he was attempting to treat with that set of tropes, and again... I don't feel that his writing skill was as good as it had been. And the story isn't as coherent as some of his previous stories. But it's not bad. It's just, it's the invidious comparison to other works. It's pretty unusual to have an author who writes and publishes books for 20 or 30 years and have all the books be the same quality. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So I feel that the best quality books by David Eddings are the Illinium and the Tamerlai. And I do feel that they are an extremely good look at what tropes can be, what these very familiar ideas can be in the hands of somebody who doesn't care whether or not this has been done a hundred times before, and also isn't interested in going, Oh, I'm gonna find a unique way to use this. No, this is a writer who takes these elements and says, This is what they're for. The purpose of the <laughs> wise old mentor is to be a wise old mentor, you know, and that there are characters who need that, that we don't always have to do the way, oh, Star Wars did. And, uh, conceal some of the tropes that we're using such as the farm boy who saves the galaxy behind all of this other stuff it's fine if there's a farm boy who saves the galaxy okay now how does he save the galaxy that's what makes it interesting not the fact of a farm boy saving the galaxy what's interesting is mm-hmm. how he gets there it doesn't matter that we're, our, we're we're familiar with this from from dozens of stories and hundreds of fairy tales
0: mm-hmm did someone did someone try to adapt his works for?: uh, TV I don't think or so. Movies?
1: not as far as I've ever heard, although I don't know that they ever would or will because uh prior to the launch of his writing career, he was convicted of child abuse. Oh, I don't recall that this information has ever been widely disseminated and I don't recall that it had the effect on his career that it would have if he were actively writing and publishing today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The first fantasy volume that he published Let me find it. Yeah, the first ver the Pawn of Prophecy, the first in the Belgariad series, came out in 1982, which was some 10, 12 years after that conviction. So Mm -hmm. there's also the fact that it had been a long time past. I have not made the effort to dig any more deeply into that and find out whether it was the sort of child abuse conviction that occurs uh where people are focusing solely on the letter of the law and not paying attention to uh the actual events or Mm -hmm. whether it was actually something a problem some kind of problem i don't know i have not looked uh frankly i'm not sure i care um
0: yeah, his wiki doesn't say no. much. 11 counts of physical child But abuse, it doesn't really say a so. whole
1: lot. Yeah, it's true that although he treats with tropes that involve younger characters, there is exactly one child character that is relevant to any of his works that I have read. Mm-hmm. Um, well, two. But in the malarion one of the driving elements of the story is the fact that our previous main character's first and only son has been kidnapped as a baby Mm -hmm. and so the child features uh most significantly in the final book um but as a baby as a child he is relevant to the story in the Illinium and the temuli Uh, There are a couple of child characters. uh, But in both cases, it turns out that this is the human guise of an ancient goddess. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she does not ever at any point allow any kind of shenanigans. Other than those two characters, I believe the youngest characters that we ever deal with in his works are about 15. And while it's true that in a legal sense abuse of a 15 year old is still child abuse um, it's not it's not as young as the children he was accused of. Uh,
0: you say nothing reflective of bad behavior towards, no, towards children in the books. No, so, not, re- yeah, not even by I the did. villains.
1: Honestly. Mm-hmm. Not even by the villains. The villainess that kidnaps our hero character's son is in fact uh must take care of this child in accordance with the prophecy um she doesn't you know treat she doesn't like play with him or do anything really nice but he's not beaten and he's not uh he's not dragged around and he's properly fed and clothed and and that sort of thing because she needs him mhm and as as far as afrail goes if you tried to beat her i don't think you'd have a hand left But it's true that the fact that she is a child goddess and that that's her preferred form has a significant impact on the story, but in the sense of invoking the trope of playful, mischievous children more than anything else.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I see. For all that he is a male writer and for all that most... It wasn't until much later that he began to share writer... Uh, credit with his wife i find that eddings's female characters aside from a certain tendency to have them all be snarky are well written and as with other authors i have spoken of he does a good job of presenting a variety of types of femininity not all of Mm -hmm. his female characters are basically the same that aside from that tendency for all of them to be snarky which is honestly applicable to pretty much all his characters um he has you know princesses who are fascinated by beautiful things and he has strong warrior women and he has uh character female characters who go through a period of thinking themselves ugly and then discover they're beautiful he has women who are um, housewife types, and he has women who are not interested in that whatsoever. He has mm-hmm. women who are ruling queens in their own right uh and don't actually need to be backed up by a man to hold on to their power, um, mm-hmm. and who do very important things in the context of the story he has in the temulai he features as some of his more asian oriented cultures. Um, there is a culture for whom nudity is utterly irrelevant and their sexuality is, if it moves and is interested, then I'm probably interested back. <laughs>
0: um, he, he gives... That's my sexuality. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and as a matter of fact, the, the fact of that being part of their culture, while it does not define the character that we're given as that is that culture the fact that she has these differences is relevant to the story um because she's constantly moving around and sending notes and having assignations she volunteers and is quite useful in the uh arranging of the conspiracy because nobody cares if she's moving around the halls nobody cares if she's sending notes this is what she always does they don't bother to check Because that's part of her her culture. It becomes relevant in a way that does not make fun of it. That does not make it seem bad. Yeah, it's not statistic. Right. Um, They they do have uh, a reasonably significant element of the story where she is trying quite hard to come on to a young knight who wants to be celibate and is from a completely different culture and he's very confused (laughs) and he does not understand (laughs) what is going on. But it's not ever presented in a way I mean to be fair there are some issues of consent there in the sense that he says no I'm not interested and she keeps pursuing him. But she does not force him into bed. She does not Mm -hmm. she, she does continue to pursue him. She does continue to woo him. But it's never presented in a way that implies that she's doing anything that would be actively out of line she just Mm -hmm. flirts with him a lot and i do think that if uh you know from within the world i think that if he truly were able to impress upon her that he wasn't interested as opposed to just feeling uncomfortable about it she'd leave him alone um, but it, it's uh-huh. made clear in the story. The problem is not that he's not interested. The problem is that he doesn't think it's moral. He's very interested. He just doesn't think he should be allowed.
0: And, so, and maybe he's not communicating that He well probably because so isn't confused.
1: because their cultures are very different. And because he's very confused. And eventually one of the uh, heads of the church sits him down and says, look, nobody's going to care. It's fine if you want to do this, and in fact, if you do this, it will probably be helpful to all of us. And, and he gives in, and they have a very nice time, and then she moves on to someone else, because she doesn't, Monogamy is not really a thing for her. And he's a little confused by that too, because monogamy is a thing in his culture. But it's made pretty clear within the context of the story that this is a culture clash. That this is not anything other than a culture clash. That she's not pursuing someone who's actively disinterested. That she's, neither of them are forcing each other. It's the, the inevitable result of two cultures who view a specific thing very differently. And figuring out how they deal with that. How do they deal with that? You know.
0: And at the same time, a culture bridge for a short while. Yes,
1: month. in fact. Very much so. And that's that particular element, the the cultural element, and that specific one, in fact, is one of the reasons why I rate the Illyium and the Temuli higher than the rest of his work. Uh, he does a much better job in there of both presenting cultures that are distinct from each other and of demonstrating what happens when these cultures encounter each other, and not just in a in a sort of a governmental sense, but on a personal level. Mm-hmm. and i find that that's that's very difficult to do as a storyteller. And again, it demonstrates the variety of different types of characters he attempts to include in his work.
0: I'd love to see more characters for whom monogamy is not a thing.
1: I can give you another author where that's true. We'll we'll do that author for the next episode. Mm-hmm. It would be a very different kind of of view, but there are some other authors I know and enjoy for whom that is true in their writing.
0: Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. Anything else you want to share?
1: I think that's it. Oh, I just stopped and looked at the weather that I had pulled up, and the weather report for tomorrow says, a hot afternoon for football.
0: Oh, you will like this. You'll be in the sun.
1: Well, yes, the weather will be great, but why did they have to specify for football? I don't understand.
0: Because they are uh, some sort of a nerd. This is an official (laughs) weather report. Why? Well, they have personality. It's nice. No,
1: (laughs) I do not approve.
0: (laughs) Football. I do not approve. Okay. Uh, Well, dear listeners, uh, enjoy... The sun as much as you can because in our hemisphere, a uh, colder season is coming, a darker season. Winter is coming. Uh, listen to, yes, <laughs> listen to Finn Lizzie and uh, try David Eddings soon. Right.
1: Grow your hair as long as you like. Listen to as much heavy metal as you want and make sure to take care of yourselves. Bye, Bye guys.